นโมทัสสะบุคควาทูอะระหะตูสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะบุคควาทูอะระหะตูสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะบุคควาทูอะระหะตูสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังขังนมัสสามkeeping the refuges and precepts and meditating all day long, and then also this afternoon, you know, today being the Uposita day, the uh, fortnightly recitation of our monastic rule, and today was the first time that uh, Tanjotiko uh, recited the rule, and this is no small feat because it's uh, 227 rules. Recited in Pali, and it's got to be word perfect. And you have somebody sitting one foot in front of you, reading the book, checking. And this time with t a n a b i n a n d o and you don't get away with anything if t a n a b i n a n d o is checking. And all the other monks sitting around, and at the very quickest you can do it if you're like a tobacco auctioneer, you can maybe get it away in 40 minutes, focused. By memory, it's it's quite a feat, and uh, so it was a great pleasure this afternoon to to sit together in the sangha and and listen to Tanjotiko recite the Patimoka rule. It's no small thing, something that I never managed to learn, unfortunately. But um, we're lucky in this monastery; both Tanabinanda and Tanjotiko know how to do it. And then this evening, before before the puja, um, two friends, the community, had. Asked if they could uh, redetermine the refuges and precepts, and, and so coming in here in the, the shrine and making offerings of candles, flowers, and incense, and formally re- re- requesting the the refuges and the precepts, and not that uh, they don't observe them anyway, but to make this statement of reaffirmation or commitment. Uh, is a very, I think, is a very skillful thing to do, and and personally, it's something that always gives me a great deal of delight. I, I always find a, a real rush of pleasure when people are taking, whether it's five precepts, eight precepts, ten precepts, two hundred twenty-seven precepts, the uh, statement of a commitment to orienting one's life towards what is symbolized by the refuges, the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, and. And a commitment to uh, using the guidelines of the five precepts in living one's life. Uh, it's for me. It's a very. I find it's a very important sign and 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 a powerful and meaningful and relevant ritual when it's done with understanding, with uh, with understanding and with commitment. Then. It, it really is very relevant. We used to, some of you may remember, we used to, together as a community, every Sunday night, go through the 
refuges and precepts. But it reached a point where I felt that, uh, uncomfortable with doing it because I thought a lot of people weren't doing it very consciously. They were, they were just kind of going through it because we do it every week and it's become a perfunctory thing. And also what I observed was that, that a number of people who came to Sunday Night Puja for the first time didn't know what was going on. And there's this, you know, there's this ritual of committing your life to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha and, and committing yourself to keeping these five moral precepts and, and bowing to graven images or bowing to me, which was even worse in some people's eyes. For people who weren't prepared for what was involved and didn't understand what was involved and didn't feel they could do it, then they felt left out. Uh, so there was half the people doing it, some were and some weren't, and uh, much to the disappointment of some people in the community, I, I took the decision to not do it as a regular thing on Sunday nights, but I did give the invitation that should anybody want to make a uh, statement of re- recommitting themselves to the refuges of the precepts, then please by all means get in touch and we can put some time aside before the uh, puja on Sunday evening and, and do that. And I do, as I say, I think it's a very skillful thing to do and really encourage it. And, um, it's, it's been said, and I trust it's the case, that if you really want to make a difference to the world, and people talk about all the problems in the world and, and feel sometimes rather hopeless and don't know what they can do to contribute, well, you know, one thing you can do is to make a commitment to keeping the refuges and observing the refuges and precepts to and the reason it's said that this makes a difference to the world you know like even with regards to the wars in the world it's said that it makes a difference and the reason that it makes a difference is that it does have an effect when we commit ourselves consciously intentionally because we want to to according our li- according with these principles establishing our lives so that we accord with these principles, then it does make a difference. makes a big difference. And so the ritual itself could be something that is just rabbited off and just buddhang sangha chami, dhammang sangha chami, without really stopping and considering what's going on or even the precepts. And I, I have seen this happen where people you know, run through the precepts and then go off down to the pub and um, and the precepts is just like you know basically saying you know, I, like we used to do we used to say the Lord's Prayer and then go off and get up to all sorts of mischief and didn't even really stop to think what the Lord's Prayer was all about and the Lord's Prayer if you stop and really contemplate it is, is, is profoundly relevant and profoundly meaningful if you really give yourself to to what's encoded in the Lord's Prayer and likewise, if, if we really consider and give ourselves into what's encoded in this ritual, then it is truly relevant and does make a difference. The Buddha, by saying, I go for refuge to the Buddha, there is, of course, the historical Buddha, who was a person, a human being, who lived roughly 2,500 years ago. And that's worth thinking about, reflecting on, that there was a person who lived and who did realize the state of perfect, complete, unshakable contentment that is possible for human beings. He wasn't an angel. 
He wasn't anything other than a human being. He was an exceptional human being, but he was still a human being, born as a human being and suffered and went through all the normal trials and tribulations of human existence, got miserable and depressed as he got older and, and then gave himself into a spiritual task which he completed. And so to, to trust that there was such a person and to reflect on that is, is relevant. So the historical Buddha, the symbol of the Buddha, of course we have, we have the Buddha image which is um, probably as most of you know was something that turned up around the time that the Greeks were, were um, traveling through Afghanistan uh, quite a long time ago. Before that there weren't Buddha images. The first Buddha images were actually looked like Grecian gods with togas and, and top knots. It was called the Gandhara period when Afghanistan was Buddhist. But with the, you know, okay, the Buddha probably didn't recommend it. In fact, I'm sure he didn't recommend there be Buddha images. But he did recommend reflecting on the teacher and he encouraged reflecting on the um, footprint, the, the footprint. Uh, and you'll see this in, in many Buddhist monasteries or as you come in through the door there on your left as you're coming in or on your right as you're going out, there's a glass etching of the stylized footprints of the Buddha. And he, he did encourage those as an object of veneration to reflect on the fact that we do have a teacher. We're not all just floundering around hoping that something turns out to be true. There, there is a teacher and there is somebody who's given the teaching. And So the Buddha recommended using the footprint or the Bodhi tree also, which tends not to grow very well in this country. Some, some Buddhist monasteries still try to have Bodhi trees growing, but um, most of them end up getting some sort of disease and dying. We had one here for a while. When I first came here, actually, we had a little Bodhi tree. Before this building was built, and, and it was sitting on the shrine about this high, about one foot high, a little Bodhi tree in there in what's now the reception room. I forget where it came from, but it was, it was held in the highest respect. Everybody was very pleased to have this Bodhi tree in. We used to water it very carefully. And, but it was also at the time when a lot of troubles were blowing up. When I first came here 12 years ago, I inherited just a few problems from, um, from the uh, previous situation and involving the neighbors and lawyers and so on and so forth. Probably most of you heard of them. And, and I found it very testing, to say the least, to have all these problems. And, but I had just come from Chithurst Monastery, where uh, not long before I left there, they'd had a massive hurricane, 87 I think it was. I don't, don't think you had it up here, but there was a massive hurricane ripped through the south of England. We lost, I don't know, about a third of the, the oak trees and beech trees in the forest we had down there. And actually this floor here, this beautiful oak floor, that there's no way we could have afforded it at the time. This is the trees from Chitter's Forest milled up the oak trees and kindly, the monastery down there kindly donated them to us so we could have this nice oak floor. But one of the things I noticed when walking around the forest after the, um, the hurricane was how shallow the roots were of the trees. You see, the, what they had, they planted a lot of this forest in chestnut and pine tree, which is not native to the area at all. But chestnut and pine grew very quickly and the uh, oak trees and particularly the beech tree that grew up in amongst this, they did very, very shallow roots. And uh, because 
what happened was all these trees grew up around them and the winds didn't, didn't shake these trees as they were growing up. And what happens when the wind shakes the trees, that shaking helps the roots go down, so I'm told. This is what I was told by all these tree experts, that the reason when the hurricanes came through and flattened all these pine trees, of course all the oak trees and beech trees went down as well because they didn't have any deep roots. So I was reflecting on this. I was thinking about having deep roots and the meaning of this. And when I was living up here and, and I was having my tree shaken a little bit by all the problems that was around, and, and I thought, well, you, you can you can turn this around. You can, you can use this blowing of winds and the problems and the hassles and the, the blame and the criticism that, that comes to us, and you can use this to help put down deep roots. That's what I was using. I always like you know, botanical metaphors and so I thought well this I can use all this to help put down deep roots and so every morning I would go into the reception room and I'd give the Bodhi tree a little shake as a sort of a little ritual for starting the day and I'd give this Bodhi tree a little shake so there wasn't going to be one of those trees that didn't have deep roots and get easily blown over but that's a little distraction that uh, the Buddha did recommend using the Bodhi tree which is uh, that tree under which he was enlightened as a, a, a reminder of the teacher and a symbol for the teacher and something towards which we can show veneration. Any of you that have been to Bodh Gaya in, um, in India, which is understood to be the place where the Buddha was enlightened, there is uh, a Bodhi tree there which is said to be uh, have, have come from the original Bodhi tree and there's a lot of veneration shown to it. So we have the historical Buddha, we have the uh, symbol of the Buddha, Buddha images, and to venerate these things, to use them as a way of, of helping us remember, reflect on that which is the spirit of the Buddha, the actual Buddha. And the Buddha himself said, if you want to see the Buddha, see the Dhamma. The Dhamma is the Buddha. And when the Buddha was dying and they were asking him, say, well, who are you leaving in charge now? Who's going to run things now that you've gone? He said, I've left you the Dhamma Vinaya. I've left you the teaching and the discipline. That's what's in charge. And so he wasn't holding up his personality or his form or the image yeah. or the symbol. These things can be reflected upon and used, but used to the degree that they align our hearts with the true Buddha. And the true Buddha is that consciousness which is the manifestation of wisdom and compassion and purity. This is the potential for all human beings. Whether you're Buddhist or any other religion, Christian or Hindu or Jew or no religion, whatever, all human beings have the potential for realization and manifestation of wisdom, compassion and purity. And for us, this is how we understand what the Buddha is. When we bow down to the Buddha, what we're bowing down to is this potential, this I honor wisdom. Wisdom, that capacity to see through the delusions of life to the way things actually are. So that our lives can be wise lives, not lives lived out of preference and, and, and habit and, and delusion, but lives lived out of wisdom, accuracy, clarity. And compassion, I bow down to compassion. That sensitivity of heart that that selflessly sees the suffering of living beings and responds with the wish to help. What can I do to help? With the manifestation of a, of a heart that is imbued with wisdom, that is not deluded by selfishness and confusion, the heart naturally manifests compassion. 
And compassion is that wish in the face of suffering to free beings from suffering, whether it's this being or any other beings, are to be seen all equally. No being is more important than another. All living beings suffer and all living beings want to be free from suffering. And when the heart is free from delusion, when the heart is awakened, then wisdom and compassion manifest. And the purity that that we reflect upon is the purity that means that there is no hint or taint of, of attachment or delusion in that wisdom and compassion because there can still be there can be wisdom and compassion manifesting I mean all of us have some wisdom and compassion but one of the things the Buddha pointed out was that even when there's some wisdom and compassion manifesting there can still be clinging to that as me and mine say my wisdom how wise I'm becoming I'm a lot wiser than I used to be I am actually I'm a lot wiser than I used to be. But to the degree that I might be attached to that wisdom, well, then I'm still stupid. And compassion also. Actually, I'm a lot more compassionate than I used to be, somewhat less selfish than I used to be. But to the degree that I'm attached to any perception of I am compassionate, that's a taint, that's a, that's a distortion, that's a disfigurement. So the purity, when we reflect on the quality of the Buddha, is wisdom, compassion and purity... That purity is the complete freedom from any attachment or any identification whatsoever with that radiance of heart that is wisdom and compassion. So when we go for refuge to the Buddha, we have the historical Buddha, the symbol of the Buddha, the actual Buddha, the spirit of the Buddha. And the Dhamma, the historical Dhamma, the teachings, when the Buddha gave himself into his spiritual pursuit that was motivated by suffering and as we all know, around the age of 29 and fell into a little disillusionment, a little disappointment, started to take hold and life wasn't as wonderful as he thought it was. In fact, he got quite into a state of despair and disappointment. And what was born out of that was this, this hope, this wish, this longing, this interest in the possibility of being freed from this feeling of being limited and bound into always concern about me you know me and my life my problems my suffering everybody's suffering everybody gets old everybody gets sick and everybody dies and everybody thinks they're special and that's a problem and the Buddha realized this problem and and then fortunately what was born out of that recognition of the problem that we all share was the hope the aspiration for going beyond it is there a solution to this or are we all stuck in it he didn't know there was a solution, but fortunately he had the faith that there might be, the hope, the aspiration that there might be. And so he gave himself into, with great sacrifice, great commitment to path of practice until he succeeded in removing all taints, all habits, all distortions, all disfigurements of consciousness and realized this actual natural state of heart, which is the radiance of wisdom and compassion and purity. He realized this state for himself. And so the teachings that manifest from that realization we call the Dhamma. Actually, it's not just the things the Buddha said about reality and it's not just the pointers that the Buddha gave. You know, when, when the Buddha was asked about becoming enlightened and, and will you enlighten me and so on, people would come and say this to the Buddha, would you enlighten me? 
everybody's struggling and if there's a chance that you think somebody's gone beyond struggle well then there's interest and so people would come to see the Buddha and say you know, you know enlighten me you, you're enlightened, enlighten me and he would say I can't enlighten you I can't do that for you all I can do is point the way and so that's what the teachings were that the Buddha gave was the pointing and this is one of the unique characteristics of the Buddha's teaching nobody can do it for us nobody there isn't anybody looking after us there isn't anybody offering guarantees but there have been fortunately and thankfully there still are people around who have made the effort for themselves and have realized the mistake of clinging the habitual habit of clinging that we have and the, the consequential contraction of heart and the distortion of mind that comes as a result of this thing we're doing that's limiting ourselves all the time there are people around who realize this mistake and have become freed from it thankfully and so have maintained this teaching this wonderful teaching that the Buddha gave the Dhamma 2500 years ago and so we're also encouraged to engage in this but as I started saying the Dhamma is not just what the Buddha taught when the, the Buddha said anything any teaching that accords with the Eightfold Path in other words any teaching that actually realistically takes us to the realization of this radiance of heart this actual wisdom actual compassion actual purity any teaching that takes us there is Dhamma you can call it whatever you like you know, call it Christianity call it Hinduism call it New Age philosophy anything doesn't matter when Ajahn Sumaita was leaving Thailand and and coming to live in England here for the first time and was talking to Ajahn Chah about uh, giving the teachings Ajahn Chah cautioned him about this idea of spreading Buddhism he said you know when you're teaching the Christians he says call it, Christ, you know, call it Christianity teach them Buddhism but call it Christianity it doesn't matter what you call it you know, so long as people get the message so long as people actually realize there is something we can do about our lives that help us learn to let go of our habits that limit us all the time and then realize for ourselves the beauty, the freedom, the radiance of heart that is already there potentially behind all the distortions and disfigurements that we've created so there's the, uh, the Dhamma that has been taught and maintained for 2500 years thankfully there's the symbol, the symbolic level of Dhamma which is actually all these words that are written down in books in the back the cupboard down there, they're what's called the Tripitaka the, uh, the words in there, these are approximations of Dhamma, though it's not Dhamma you can recite every word in those 36 volumes I think there are in the Tripitaka and uh, there are monks, you may not believe me on this but there are monks now who still live today in Burma who can recite the entire Tripitaka 36 volumes just the same as Tanjotiko today recited the for 40 or 50 minutes the uh, Patimoka rule there are monks who can actually still these days recite the entire Tripitaka it's a training that, that, that they take on when they're very young monks and they build up and build up and then every few years I think every five years or something there's an examination in Rangoon and hundreds of monks all sit around together and examine these what are called Tripitaka masters these monks they recite takes days to do it tragically actually one of these Tripitaka masters was I think actually died in prison he was imprisoned by the um, the regime the military regime and 
that's torturing Burma at the moment. So these teachings have been encoded, and for the first 500 years that that they were around, they were they were held in memory. They weren't written down. It was considered in those days vulgar to write down things. You only those days you only wrote down things like good jokes or whatever, or maybe I don't know, maybe medical recipes or something. But spiritual teachings you didn't write them down. You committed them to memory, and you would have whole batteries of monks and batteries of nuns. You know, sitting there practicing together, reciting um, these teachings as they were recorded, committed to memory. And the reason you'd have a battery of monks doing it, like you've got, say, five monks or five nuns or whatever, reciting these teachings, is that you know you don't get five people making a mistake at the same time. So you could tell when a mistake was being made. So this was a way of actually keeping the teachings uh, accurate. So for the first 500 years... The teachings approximately were not written down; they were just recited by special, you know, monks and nuns who had trained themselves to remember them. And then there was a period about two thousand years ago when uh, there's lots of squabbling going on between all the different sects that had started up, and so at that time it was felt there was a real risk to the teachings being lost because there were wars being fought in some of these Buddhist countries and Sri Lanka in particular. So the decision was taken at that point to write them down. And Pali, the language that in this tradition, this uh, Theravadan school of Buddhism, the uh, oldest form of uh, the teachings, teachings were recorded in Pali, didn't have its own script. So the teachings were written down in various different scripts. And of course, we these days are fortunate to have them translated and recorded in our own uh, language. But when we recite Pali, as you've seen in the chanting books, it's written in, in Roman script. And uh, you can recite the whole thing. You can recite the entire Tripitaka, but that's only an approximation of the Dhamma. That's not the Dhamma. Now, some people will worship the Dhamma books or worship the words as if the words themselves are holy or worship Buddha images as if the, the Buddha images are themselves holy. Things are not holy. If we want to use the word holy or sacred or blessed, that which can be blessed is the, is the heart, the consciousness of a being. When a human being actually understands the Dhamma, understands and realizes the valid, val, validity and the value for themselves of, of these teachings, that's the true blessing, that's the true point. And that's the spirit of the Dhamma, the recognition of these teachings. When, and we can do that for ourselves. You don't have to be some arahant or some bodhisattva or specially wise or wonderful gifted being taking the refuges and precepts. We can realize the benefit. What happens when you live a life according to the precepts? These five moral precepts that um, John and David took tonight. Yeah. And most of you, I would, accept, I would expect, understand and observe when you live by these moral precepts, what's the benefit? Well, we can realize for ourselves the benefit, like what happens if you don't keep them? The Buddha's attendant, Venerable Ananda, once asked the Buddha, his teacher, said, what is, what is the benefit of, of uh, moral precepts? And the Buddha immediately replied, freedom from remorse. You know, not like you're going to go to heaven when you die. Well, you might actually, that's, if you keep the moral precepts. But that's not what the Buddha said. That's not like... He wasn't giving us a carrot. He was talking about the fact. The actuality is that if we live a life of integrity, 
there's a direct realization, a direct experience of well-being, of, uh, inwardly. We can know that for ourselves. So realizing the Dhamma for ourselves, that's the point of the Dhamma, that's the spirit. So there's the origin or the form or the history, uh, the source of the Dhamma, there's a symbol, and then there's the, the true Dhamma, which is the realization of these teachings for ourselves. And then there's the Sangha. Originally, when the Buddha first started teaching, he had what, he, what, was, what have come to known as the Panchawagi Bhikkhus, these five companions that he had had as, as his friends when he was out on his spiritual quest. The monks in, in those days used to wander around in little groups and they would go and stay with a certain teacher and then get what they could from that teacher and then go and live with another teacher. And, and so anyway, he had these five companions that he had been living with and they were all all sharing benefit of, of their spiritual life and maybe there's a little competing going on as well, who's going to get there first. They were all great ascetics. What happened was that uh, the Buddha decided that extreme asceticism was a hindrance to spiritual life. They were practicing all sorts of great austerities, fasting as long as they could, fasting on food and not eating for days on end and not wearing clothes and drinking minimal water and you know, even disciplining their breathing. And, and the Buddha came to realize that he was nearly dead actually at the time. He came to realize, well, that's his wisdom was showing through and that's imbalance. That's, 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 not, that's not taking me to more contentment. It was taking a position, basically. He was taking a position against pleasure and comfort as if somehow suffering in itself was a virtue. Fortunately, he had the wisdom already to recognize eventually, when he was nearly dead, that that wasn't the case. And so he released out of that extreme austerity and started eating normal food. And And uh, his five friends, the Panchavagi Bhikkhus, they decided that he was um, getting soft. And so they left him. And uh, he was all alone. And that was actually a great benefit. He, was, he was, wasn't distracted then by all the other stuff that was going on. And also, in that state of complete isolation, he had to face any feelings he had of being alone, of great loneliness, of great rejection, of, of great failure even, because they considered him as a failure. His parents considered him as a failure. Or his father considered him as a failure. And now his best friends considered him as a failure. And he was all alone, left with the one thing, his determination to realize the possibility of freedom from all distortions and all suffering. And so when he did re arrive at this realization, and, and it's recorded that, or he said himself, that there was three months before he was motivated to really teach anybody. And when he did, he eventually came round to finding, tracking down and finding these old five friends of his and giving them the teaching, which they were very grateful for. And so they became the first uh, community of monks. And the Buddha, from the very beginning, recognized that there was a value in a community of spiritual seekers. And so he used this word sangha, which is the Pali word, literally means community. And this eventually became one of the, what he, he recommended as the three refuges, the teacher, the teaching and the community of people committed to the teaching. 
Now this community of people committed to the teaching is not just club members or people who are, just happen to be your friends, but in the usage here of Sangha as a refuge, as, as something held up to trust in, to believe in, to orient our lives towards, this Sangha is the community of people committed, who have made a commitment to practice and to realization. And that commitment is very important because with commitment there's sacrifice. If there's no sacrifice, actually there's no real gain. If there's no sacrifice, there's no real benefit. And so the Buddha held up this the community of spiritual practitioners, of people who've made a, a real commitment to the path of practice, and that this to recognize this uh, and to orient, use this as a symbol for orienting our lives on the path of practice. So the original Sangha was these... Um, spiritual companions of the Buddha and then the monastic order of monks and nuns that he set up uh, at the time during his life and then this monastic order of monks and nuns has, has lived down through the millennia to what we have today and you have people going around with shaven heads and robes and, and this is being called the Sangha but it needs to be understood that the shaven head and robes and sandals and so on this is only the symbolic Sangha. This is not the real Sangha. This, this we can use to orient our lives, to reflect upon the qualities of the true Sangha, which is that spirit of harmonious community committed to practice and to realization. But one reason that is held up as a, as a refuge is that as human beings who do trust that there is work to be done, that there is a path of practice that we can commit ourselves to. We do need companions. We do need companions. And ultimately, as the teachings point out, that Buddha taught about anatta, there is no self, ultimately speaking, but that's not our experience. As far as we're concerned, actually, there is a self. There is somebody here. There's definitely a somebody here. And so long as we're still feeling like there is a somebody here, we need companions to support ourselves, to support each other. And so to recognize and to contemplate the value of spiritual community and to show respect to this, as we show respect to the Buddha, show respect to the Dhamma, show respect to the Sangha, what we're doing by showing respect is actually investing energy in these things and then they give something back to us. And so myself, I feel over the years of, of uh, being a Buddhist, which is about 30 years now, 30-something years, in the beginning these refuges didn't mean a great deal to me, but I realize now how they have grown to be profoundly relevant and meaningful in my life. And I'm very encouraging of, of other people to, to consider them, to look into them, until if they reach the point where they do feel that they have a confidence in them, then to, to really give themselves formally uh, maybe involved, maybe engaging the ritual, maybe not engaging the ritual, but within oneself, at least making a statement, say, I orient my life towards these three refuges, the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, and to contemplate what that means. If we don't have, if we don't have something that we really believe in, I think uh, it makes a big difference. And 
the difference between the way Buddhists talk about the belief and the way most theistic religions talk about belief is that beliefs for Buddhists are a means they're not the end we don't, we don't just grasp the belief and say okay I believe so that's it that, that doesn't work the belief is a tool a skillful means something that we, we use because so long as we still suffer so long as we're still confused so long as we're still caught up in loneliness and resentment and greed and selfishness and worry and anxiety and fear and all the rest of it we do need help and so one of the skillful means the Buddha offered us was this convention of committing ourselves to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. They're referred to as the three refuges or the three gems, the three jewels. Ratana, actually the name of this monastery, Ratana, means jewel and is something precious because if our hearts or if at the core of our being we are really aligned with that which is true that which we've considered is really worthy that we, we believe wisdom is possible it is possible to learn to see clearly we know what it's like to be confused and to suffer and to not understand and, and to be caught up in things that are, that are not real and to not know whether we're coming or going we know how painful that is and hopefully also we know what it's like to be able to see through that and to be free from that the, the, the beauty and the appropriateness of wisdom whether it's realization to some minimal degree in our own lives or the beauty of it when we recognize it in those who, who are profoundly wise and have, have, have unshakable wisdom and we know what it's like when there's compassion sensitivity in our hearts and whether we feel it in ourselves or we witness it in another we can experience these things, these principles, wisdom, compassion and purity for ourselves and so we know that these things are truly valuable. Now if we don't give appropriate attention to that which is truly valuable, well then we lose it, we don't really benefit from it. It's just the same as material level, if you inherit a, a load of money which is very nice, you get a whole load of money, you inherit it but you don't protect it properly well, conditions are going to conspire whereby you'll, you'll lose it one way or another, either through your own bad management and heedlessness, you'll waste it, or maybe somebody will come along and nick it. And one way or another, we won't benefit from what we've inherited. So in as much as we do recognize the uh, inherent goodness in the human condition, it's skillful and, and, and wise to raise these things up as for us they're encoded in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. And the reason in the ritual of going for refuge, the reason that it's done three times, you know, we say, Buddhang Saranangachami, Dhammang Saranangachami, Sankhang Saranangachami, Duty Yampi, you know, for the second time I go for refuge to the Buddha, for the second time I go for refuge to the Dhamma, for the second time I go for refuge to the Sangha, and then Tati Yampi, for the third time I go for refuge to the Buddha, the third time I go. It's not just because the Indians like to make things complicated, you know, or they do everything in threes, it's more than that. What's important is that that we do it mindfully or we do it consciously and so we've got three chances you know, we, we do it once and we do it a second time we do it a third time the, the meaning of that ritual is, is that we're doing this intentionally consciously it's not just a pointless ritual that we're rabbiting off and likewise with the precepts that these five moral precepts 
that um, I'd like to spend another half hour talking about, but I won't. Um, these five moral precepts, yes, there's a ritual. You say, I go for ref- I undertake the training to refrain from killing living beings. Pānāti pātā ami. I undertake the training to refrain from killing living beings. I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not given. Now these things are are, are worded in a way whereby it says, I undertake the training to refrain from this. We recognize that we've all got habits and we also all make mistakes. But if if we give ourselves a training structure, well then there's going to be benefit. So we're not saying by taking the, the precepts that I'm never going to make any mistakes ever in my life. We're just saying that killing living beings, to kill a living being, you've got to close your heart. I don't know how much killing any of you have been doing but recently, but if you do kill anything, I'm not encouraging you to try this, but I can remember when I was a youngster and we used to go fishing. I'd go fishing. I used to love... I used to like the fight. You know, when I'd get a big, uh, the big uh, kawai was the fish we used to get in New Zealand. A kawai is kind of big fish, and I'd like to really, the fight of getting the fish and playing it and pulling it in. I'd really like the fight and and getting it landed. But but the killing of it was awful. I didn't. I used to get my brother to do it. I didn't used to like killing it. And I shot a rabbit once. You know, everybody in where I grew up in Morrinsville used to go out shooting rabbits. And or pigs as well. I never shot a pig uh, or deer. A lot of guys used to go out deer hunting as well. But I did shoot a rabbit once. I can just remember the, the heaviness of my heart of having killed this living being. And and that's what you have to do to kill. You've got to close your heart. You've got to create an obstruction to the natural radiance. The natural radiance is compassion. How can I help? That's the natural radiance. We've got to obstruct that to kill. We've got to close that off. And if you do it habitually, sadly, we see the consequences all around us of what's happened when people have obstructed that natural, beautiful radiance of the heart. There's a, there's a sadness, there's an ugliness manifests, and certainly a lack of wisdom. So undertaking the train to refrain from killing living beings is a way of protecting that radiance. Undertaking the, the training to refrain from taking what is not given is obvious. Undertaking the training, the third precept, to refrain from sexual irresponsibility. And that's a really important area. People these days often ask, what does that mean? How, you know, what, what is okay and what's not okay? Now, there used to be, a few decades ago, a certain sort of collective standard of what was okay and what's not okay. Well, in the last few decades, uh, certainly in the last century, that collective sense of what's okay and what's not okay has has fallen apart and and there's one tendency to say well anything's okay what the Buddha said was anything's not okay what is okay is when there is no intention to harm living beings if there is no harmful intention involved then it's okay and so a lot of religions get into all sorts of squabbles about sexuality and, and what, what's okay and what's not okay. And, and much of the confusion comes because not, there's not a lot of wisdom involved. Well, the Buddha pointed out there's the dimension of morality which is established on 
intention to cause harm to living beings, if there is any intention to cause harm, then it's not okay, it's not moral. It doesn't matter what anybody else says about it, it's not morally okay. But then there's also another question of skillfulness. Now, skillfulness, like with regards to sexuality, there's the moral dimension, which one needs to be very, very clear about, but then also there's the area of skillfulness, like with, for instance, with regards to food, one's food appetite. You can't say it's immoral to just go to the fridge and take out food and eat it. There's nothing immoral unless you're nicking it. You know, if it's yours, you can eat it. But that doesn't mean to say it's skillful. Just because you're hungry, you just feel like you want to eat something, you've got to also use discernment. You've got to use intelligence. I mean, if you just eat anything that's put in front of you, you can get very sick. I mean, a lot of food is going to make you sick. A lot of food's got chemicals in it. A lot of food's just going, it's, it's overly spiced or overly sweet or overly fatty or got chemicals specially designed to tickle your taste buds and you can just end up becoming unsuitably greedy and eat too much. And then there are consequences, as probably most of us realize now, that obesity is one of the biggest killing diseases uh, in the Western world. So just because you want to eat doesn't mean to say you should eat. And that's the same with sexuality. Just because one wants to indulge in gratifying one's sexual appetite doesn't mean to say that it's skillful but that doesn't that's not the same as moral and it's very important to be clear about the difference on these things and so taking moral precepts like I undertake the train to refrain from sexual irresponsibility means we've got to stop and consider well what is responsible what is responsible morally and what is responsible in terms of skillfulness and then the fourth precept of I undertake the train to refrain from false speech well, there's the obvious, most immediate level of false speech. That is basically with the intention to deceive. If you intend to deceive somebody, then it's false speech. And just as if you see somebody else lies to you, you don't trust them anymore. Right? I mean, you can, if you can reflect on what happened, if you caught somebody out lying to you, how do you feel towards them? Well, we feel just the same way towards ourselves. If we know we lie we actually have that same negative attitude towards it. We don't trust ourselves, and that's a big thats a big loss. And that's going back to what the Buddha said to Ananda. Yeah. Living by these principles, we're free from remorse. We can trust ourselves. And just the same as if you know somebody who you really feel you can trust totally, you can share anything and everything with, and you know there'll be no judgment, no compromise of the love they feel for you and the love you feel for them, that open-heartedness of a, of a pure, unobstructed relationship is not compromised in any way when there is this mutual trust. And the beauty of that uh, can be experienced within ourselves if we have such a relationship of honesty as well. And then the last, the fifth precept, I undertake the training to refrain from taking consciousness-distorting drink and drugs. Now if one's really serious about a commitment to the precepts, it's not just kind of a well they seem good in you know, they seem like good ideas, I'll I'll take them. That's okay, that's an initial level and and I, I think that's fine, you know, for, in terms of, of taking the precepts, sometimes people think, Oh I've got to I've got to be absolutely sure that I'm gonna keep all these five precepts forever and ever. That's not, that's not the Buddhist approach to morality. The Buddhist approach to morality is just 
taking the precepts with the determination to improve yourself a little bit, respecting these moral precepts, respecting the principles encoded in these precepts with the intention to improve a little bit. Or even if you can't take five precepts, you can take four or three. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's the skillful approach. That's a wise approach to precepts. It's really unfortunate when people pick up these precepts and think, oh, I've got to be perfect, and then they start com- coming near to the edge. And they, you know, I remember when I was a new monk and I walking on the path and I, I stood on an ant and I had a panic attack. You know, oh, my purity is ruined. Well, that attitude towards the precepts is not a wise attitude. You know, the, these are guidelines. I undertake the training to refrain from killing living beings because I think killing is not right. I undertake the training to refrain from taking things that are not given because I want to engender an atmosphere of trust and mutual respect. If we have these aspirations, well, then we can pick up these refuges and precepts because we're personally interested in them, not because it just gives us a club membership. So uh, mentioning these this evening, uh, I I hope that you'll take these thoughts away and consider them in in your own life, not that everything I say is is the final word of them, not at all, but that these refuges and precepts are, are set up so as to stimulate our own contemplation, to give us the awareness that we're responsible for our lives. There isn't anybody out there looking after us. There isn't anybody up there keeping a notebook of what we do right and wrong. We keep the notebook. We know. I tell you, one of the reasons I keep my precepts is because I don't want to have to remember breaking them. I know what it's like to break precepts. It's awful. I don't want to have to remember that. And that's also, of course, what the Buddha said to Ananda. Keeping these moral precepts leads to a life of freedom from remorse. Taking up the refuges gives us a skillful, wise orientation of our life. We know what we believe in. We don't just believe in the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha and then go around cutting off people's heads if they don't believe in it. No. We believe in these things because we we need to know what we believe in. If we don't know what we believe in, well then we, we feel disoriented in our life. So these are the ways of getting our bearings and the precepts are there to support us in our daily life. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. I'm